So how do you become a child of God? Like, could you answer that question? Like, just on the spur of the moment, somebody asks you, what's this all about? How do you become a child of God? Since, since every one of us in this room was born into this world not being a child of God, contrary to popular belief across our planet, we're all children of God, right? No. The Bible's pretty clear on this. Since you were born into this world not being a child of God, wouldn't you want to know how, especially once you realized and it dawned on you that you're not? Just, I, I, I mean, I want, I'd want to be. Uh, beginning of our study through this Gospel of John, especially, particularly where we've been the last two weeks, which is in those first 18 verses of chapter 1, that, that gospel tells us the best news in the entire world that estranged sinners can become children of God. The impossible is possible. Isn't that exciting? I mean, that gets me up in the morning. Apparently. <laughs> All right, whatever. It's not through doing more good than bad in your life. It's not joining a church. It's not even going to church, but I encourage you to do that. It's not being a nice person. How many of you are nice people? <laughs> Good. Nobody puts their hand up. Well, a few did. It's not going through some sort of process or initiation or, or some, some way of proving that you're worthy. It's not like when you're at work and you're schmoozing up to your boss to get a raise. It's, it's not like that. Uh, or, or, you're, or you're trying to make a parent proud of you by your accomplishments, so you're letting them know. John tells us, and we're going to see this over and over again as we go through this amazing gospel, he tells us we become God's children simply through believing in Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross while at the same time, God is working in us this miracle that He's going to describe in a couple chapters as the new birth. That miracle of making this old person into a new person. Are you excited about that? Do you ever just want to start over? Like, if I could only go back and... Am I the only one who's had that thought? If I could just start over. Did you ever wish you were different? <laughs> Not that you are different, but did you ever wish that you were different? John 1, 12, 13, we read it last week, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Obviously, to become a child of God meant that you weren't a child of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but it's from God. This thing is from God. The old made new is one of John's major themes, and we're going to see it again and again, and especially this morning when we get into chapter 2. Another theme is that this human sin this human sin and, and all that is broken in our world, which you just need to read the news every morning to figure that out, it's often described by John as darkness. Have you noticed that already? It's just in the first 18 verses. And it's interesting to me that one of the plagues 
that God brought upon the Egyptians as they held God's children as slaves was the plague of darkness. Exactly. It's in Exodus 10, 21. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. And get this, I don't know if, if, if you've noticed this, a darkness to be felt. A darkness to be felt. Our human sin separates us from a holy God. We all feel it. It's described by all kinds of different things in our world today, but we all feel it. We all know it. And our world is fearful of it. And we have all sorts of ways that each of us has come up with to numb it. And that separation is described in God's Word with the same term used for darkness. A little few years later, they're at Mount Sinai, and they're, they're camped before it, and it's in Exodus 20 and 21, and it, it describes, remember the mountain, Mount Sinai? It's, a bla- it's got fire, it's got thunder, it's got lightning, the earth is quaking, and God's there, and we read, the people stood far off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when God is in the room, you stand far off. While Moses drew near to what? To the thick darkness where God was. Isn't that unusual to associate God in darkness? But God was visibly to his people, separated from them by darkness. That's how God chose to demonstrate visibly our distance from him. He is other, he is separate. And the Gospel of John declares to us that our world full of darkness has been pierced by the light of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that separation that was between God and mankind, God has made a way. He's turned on the light. So let's move on this morning from 1 to 18. I mean, we'll probably refer to it again and again and again throughout our life, but right now we're going into chapter 1, verse 19, and I'm going to try to get to chapter 2, verse 11. Are you with me? Okay, here we go. The first scene that we get, I mean, everything's been introductory up to this point. First scene we get from John the Apostle is the testimony of John the Baptist, two different Johns, right? And it's about God's light, surprise, that has come. And in verses 19 through 28, the religious leaders, they're wondering what all the hubbub is about, all the commotion going on, and people are coming through Jerusalem on their way to to see this guy named John the Baptist, this crazy guy out in the wilderness, and, and, and people are coming through Jerusalem. They're leaving Jerusalem in droves out to see him. We read in other places by the thousands. So they send their priests and their Levites from Jerusalem, from the capital, to ask John the Baptist, and they said, who are you? And he confessed, well, he didn't answer them right away. He said, well, I'm not the Christ. <laughs> Just get that straight right from the get-go. And they asked him, well, then who are you? Are, then are you Elijah, like the great prophet? And he said, nope. Um, are, you, are, are you the prophet, the one that Moses said would come after him? He goes, nope. And then he goes, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, which would catch their attention right away, because this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. Make, way, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
That's proof that John the Apostle is giving us that Jesus is fulfilling all of the prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament. So they asked him, okay then, then why are you baptizing with people with water, which is a, a baptism unto repentance, you know, saying, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I repent of what I've done, I'm going to start new again. If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, and John answered them, you're right, I baptize with water, but among you is standing one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, and the strap of his sandal, I'm not worthy to untie it. And the very next day, this thing happens. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him after making all, that, all those pronouncements the day before, and he says, behold the Lamb of God. What was a lamb to the people other than food? What was a lamb? A sacrifice, exactly, that you would give, and you did it once, and you were good, right? No, no, over and over and over again. Those poor lambs. He says publicly, behold the lamb of God. God's got a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Your lamb offerings take away your sin. The, the priest makes an offering on the day of Passover, and it takes away, the, covers the nation's sin. This one, the world. This is he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Do you remember what I said yesterday, John saying? Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, and he said, I saw the Spirit. As he was baptizing Jesus, we read this in the other Gospels. I saw the Spirit descended from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, this is God the Father, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And the next day after baptizing Jesus, the day after publicly declaring that he is the Son of God, John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples, we read, and Jesus walked by and John said to his disciples, behold the Lamb of God. He said it again. Behold the Lamb of God. And his two disciples heard what he said and they followed Jesus. They, they left John, their, their rabbi, right? Their teacher, who, their, who he was discipling. And they went and followed Jesus, spent the day with him. And one of them, his name was Andrew, he so geeked about this that he goes and he gets his brother Simon and he says to him, we found the Messiah. And John, the apostle, puts in parenthesis, and you'll see this throughout the gospel, these parenthesis after a, a statement of a place or, or, or a saying or, or a custom because John's writing to the world. And he's got to explain Jewish things that most Gentiles wouldn't understand. He said, we found the Messiah, which is Hebrew for anointed one, and he says, which means Christ, which is Greek for anointed one. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter in Greek. And then, then Jesus on that day goes and he calls another guy and his name's Philip. 
And Philip is so excited, he goes and he brings his friend Nathaniel to Jesus with this. He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Nathaniel comes and he meets Jesus and he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You just got to meet Jesus once. And your eyes are opened by God and you say, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, he adds. So Jesus' band of disciples is growing. Jesus is their teacher, and these men are his pupils. And did you notice, did you notice, as I just went over that brief story, how both Andrew and Philip couldn't contain the excitement over the good news? Did you notice that? I mean, that stood out to me. This good news that they had been exposed to and believed in, they had to bring to those that they cared about. And they had to expose them to Jesus. Grace Chapel, lesson learned. During the first few days of Jesus' ministry, he begins to choose these key disciples who we read later. The Father actually told him who he was to get. And he chose these, these first few from among John the Baptist's own followers. And adding what we know from the other Gospels, Jesus' first disciples included the brothers Andrew and Simon Peter, then he had Philip and Nathaniel, and then the brothers, the sons of thunder, we read in another place, James and John. So he's halfway already to the 12. And now we go into chapter 2. And we're going to do the first 11 verses because here is the first of seven signs. This section begins what is commonly called the book of signs, seven of them. And today, sign number one, turning water into wine, John chapter 2. This section we're getting into now covers approximately three years of Jesus' earthly life. It takes up ten chapters, goes pretty much halfway through the book. And all seven of these signs that John's going to give us, usually with some descriptors and Jesus teaching around them, have been specifically chosen by John out of the thousands and thousands of signs that Jesus performed to specifically point out that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's his reason for writing the book. And in this first half, half John is through the signs going to reveal Jesus' glory as the Son of God. And in the last half of the gospel, it's usually referred to as the book of the hour or, or the book of the glory. And it covers just the last week, the last seven days of Jesus Christ's life, but it takes up ten chapters also. And all seven signs point to that last week. All seven signs help explain what that last week is all about. So be, every time we go through one of these signs, be thinking about that last week where Jesus is, is glorified. His glory isn't just revealed. He is glorified by God the Father as the Son of God. Okay, let's read it. I'm going to read it to you. I believe we have this up on the screen too. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, <laughs> that's interesting, three days after choosing his first disciples, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to him, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. In Jesus' day, weddings were not like they are now. Did you catch that? Many weddings were an even bigger deal than we make out of weddings today. Nowadays, couples, well, you know, they, they fall in love and, uh, and they do that all on their own. <laughs> Nobody's saying you need to fall in love. Yeah, you just fall in love all on your own. And back then it was a family decision. I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe you're going, well, that's not a bad idea. And if you're younger, you're going, that's a terrible idea. Um, but it was a family decision. Uh, everybody was involved. Bring in grandma and grandpa, get everybody. Um, and everyone needed to be satisfied. Parents had to agree with the courtship. And then the ceremony, which was quite elaborate and quite ex was always quite expensive. So at least we have that in common today. The expense part, that's, that's the only part we have in common. When the special day came, the bride would get ready at the hotel. No, she would not. The bride would get ready in her house. Probably not her house, but her father's home, father and mother's home. That's where she got ready. And her attendants, it was probably male and female, would position themselves outside her home and wait for the coming of the groom. How different is that today? I, I usually stand up here at the front, and the, the groom is typically beside me. And what are we waiting for? And, and she comes whenever she wants, right? Right? So it's just like, no, I'm going to make him sweat just a little bit longer. No, no. So, so we wait, and that's how we do it. Well, this is way different, right? Way different. Waiting for the coming of the groom. And the groom, <laughs> he would come from an unknown place at an unknown time. So the bride has to be ready. Right? You gotta, gotta get, you gotta have your act together. And the, the groom's just like, yeah, I got a couple things to do today. Oh yeah, and I gotta go pick up my bride. I gotta do that at three. I'll get there when I get there. But someone would see him coming down the road and yell, look, the bridegroom comes. It was kind of an official statement. And then all the attendants, all of them, would leave the house and rush out down the road to join him. And then they would come in one big huge celebration to pick up the bride. And I, and I do mean pick up the bride. As this procession neared the front door of this home, someone would yell, look, the bridegroom is here, which would tell the bride, uh, the, the bride inside, you better be done because it's happening, all right? Whether you're ready or not, it's, it's, it's going down. 
So the wedding party would enter the house and they would literally pick up the bride. Think about this, ladies. Okay. So they literally pick up the bride and carry her to the groom's house, which you hoped was not that far away. Just, I'm just thinking ahead. All right. Man, are we there yet? Uh, and they'd be celebrating the whole way. So if you had a lot of money, uh, you could probably have a accompanied by music and celebrations and lots of people hired to make a noise and just make it a big deal running to the house, to, to his house. And then you got to the groom's house and then the doors were shut and the couple went in and consummated their marriage. That was the wedding. I don't know. And then they would come out and that's when the party started. And it often lasted seven days. And that part, I'm thinking, yeah. Aren't you? Like, who's getting married this summer? Because <laughs> I want to book off that week, the whole thing. Because it didn't cost me anything, right? It's all covered. And so, so to understand this passage fully, what's really going on here, it's important to note that, that marriages at this time were really public ceremonies. They were typically for the whole town, you know, for everybody who... Was, was there, um, um, but the, the party part, you had to be invited. And they had two key components. What happened in the house of the groom affirmed the bride's purity. That's why they did all that. The grandeur, number two, the grandeur of the party affirmed the groom's ability to provide for his bride. Everything had to go well. The groom and his family were responsible to demonstrate their ability to provide and care for this girl who had just consummated herself in marriage to this man. To fail to host a good party wasn't just embarrassing, it was considered illegal. So we are told that not only is Jesus' mother invited to the wedding, but Jesus and his disciples were invited as well. Um, Mary was probably a member of uh, the wedding party, this, this processional thing, because we were told that she, she's the one that told the servants what to do, right? Um, she knew about the crisis of wine before even the master of the feast knew about the crisis of the wine and was aware. And she had a real deep-hearted concern for how this event was going to turn out. And because of the nature of the culture in the ancient Near East, Running out of wine was a really big deal at a wedding. Really big deal. The bride's family, according to law, could actually sue for damages if such a situation occurred. And then that new marriage, <laughs> can you imagine their first night, um, would start off on a very rocky ground. Your parents are suing me. Well, you should have had enough wine, dummy. I mean, it's like, I, to I told you. I told you so. You should have had it. Did you check on it? That's where that all started. But let's, for a minute here, I just want to consider one little thing here about how John presents Mary and Jesus. I think it's really interesting. What would it be like to be the mother of Jesus? I mean, from birth right through till he's almost 30 here. Most would agree that Jesus didn't grow up doing miracles. It wasn't God's timing for him to reveal himself in that kind of a way. 
And we're going to see that that timing is really important and is very evident in some of his earlier miracles, even this one. But he couldn't have been an average kid either, could he? I mean, an angel announced his birth. Joseph and Mary would have to come up with some sort of story about all the years they had to escape to Egypt, right? Where'd you guys go? <laughs> that was a long honeymoon. Jesus never sinned, ever. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. God promised Mary that her son would sit on the throne of King David and the present king of Israel, King Herod, was trying to kill him. Mary had seen some stuff already, <laughs> a lot. So it's significant to notice that when the party begins to go south, where does Mary turn? She turned to her son. He's got to have an answer to this. They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus' response was not rude. I know that's how we read it in English. If you, if you read this uh, verse in like four or five different translations, you'll see that even the translators who live and breathe the language have difficulty translating this Greek idea that is behind these words into English. Jesus was being polite. But what he was doing here was distancing himself from his mom's request, not from his mom herself. Important to note. Notice how she responds to his answer. What does she say? Do whatever he tells you. She took his answer to her as an affirmative. And don't miss that little phrase, my hour has not yet come. Over the next eight chapters in John, he's going to repeat that phrase over and over and over again until you get to just after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem during that last week into Jerusalem in chapter 12, Jesus is going to say, okay, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and he'll march straight to the crucifixion. Jesus knows that what he's about to do at this wedding will start God the Father's clock ticking ticking down towards he knows what's coming, his crucifixion, for your sin and for my sin. And in his first miracle, it's also kind of a semi-private affair, isn't it? It's not real, real public yet. Uh, initially, just for his disciples, as we read in verse 11, this is the first sign that Jesus did in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In the last half of this section, in verses 6 through 11, we witness the miracle itself. Six water jars, empty, six water jars, empty, 20, 30 gallons each. Now, this water was for washing the guests who were arriving to this feast, to wash their hands and to wash their feet. Um, and it's, it's more than just washing the dirt because you're wearing sandals on dusty roads. It's, it's, it's more than, I mean, that's a part of it. It's very practical. But there's more to it. This water had been put in these jars, that had been put in these jars, was for a symbol of purification. It, it was a reminder laid down by God in the Old Testament that we're dirty. Because I don't know about you, I need to be reminded of that often. 
that were dirty before God, not just on the outside, as we typically get, but on the inside. Something must be done about that. And this cleaning ritual was required by Old Testament law. And Jesus' mission is to fulfill the Old Testament law, which no one else could do. And upon fulfilling that law perfectly his entire life, Jesus' mission was to be the, be the pure sacrifice, to be the, the eternal purification, which I don't know about you, but I can't be that. I can't accomplish that. We can never provide that. So Jesus tells the servants to fill these empty jars back up with water and then take some of it to the master of the banquet. And the master, the master of the banquet's response is clearer in the original language than it is in your English translations. He, he literally would hear, grab the groom and basically say, this is the best wine ever. I mean, where did you get this? Yeah, you're, you're the best groom in the whole wide world. So that's kind of how it comes across. The only people who know about this are Jesus, right? Um, a couple of the servants, his disciples, because this is why he did it for them, and, and probably his mom, Mary, obviously. The value of that wine in today's uh, Standards has been estimated by some to easily be anywhere between twenty to sixty thousand dollars, twenty to sixty thousand dollars worth of wine. That's that's a really nice wedding gift. Don't drink it. Let's sell it. No, that, that, that's me. That's not them. I, I, did the groom ever find out what had really happened? Well, we're never told. I'm, I'm thinking he's probably going. That's the way my family rolls. Yeah, that's, what, that's, what, that's how we do things. Uh, but here's the fact that we do know. That anyone who trusts in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Here's a fact. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That those Old Testament purification rituals, and there were many of them, they, they served some very practical, very meaningful and symbolically spiritual purposes. They really did. But they had to be repeated continually. You were never clean enough. You were always dirty or getting dirty. They were never designed by God to be the answer to washing away our sin problem. And in this chapter, and now in the next two chapters, we're going to see God do away with the old and bring in the new. We just watched the old purification using water replaced with the wine of the kingdom of God that is described in the Old Testament in detail, and John even brings it out later in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll watch the old temple replaced by a coming Savior. We'll watch as our physical birth into this life is transformed into a new spiritual birth, into a new creation. We're going to get a contrast between the temporal water that temporarily satisfies from Jacob's well 
to the eternal living water that can only come through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus will contrast the worship that was going on at that time in Jerusalem and and in Samaria in Gerizim to be replaced with worship in spirit and in truth. It's a new day, and things are going to change. So what does sign number one of seven tell us, you and I, the readers today? Well, John insists that his purpose in recording these particular seven signs out of the thousands Jesus performed was to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He says so in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not even written in this book, but these that I have chosen, these seven, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point turning plain water into the best wine possible tells me that Jesus is the creator God. This miracle breeds faith. It really does. It breeds faith in who Jesus is. It's one of God's first steps through this gospel towards my redemption on the cross. You know that amazing wine at that wedding, eventually ran out, right? It's like, oh no, it's all gone. Most things in our life are going to run out. All the things we put our hopes and dreams into, all the stuff we work so hard for, it's going to run out. It's going to end. But our recreation Our transformation into the image of Jesus Christ is eternal, and it will never run out, ever. Michael Faraday. Does anybody know who Michael Faraday is? Lived in the uh, 1800s. He's the guy who invented the electric motor, and I hear it's making a comeback. When he was asked about his belief in the afterlife, here's what he said. Speculations? I have none. I am resting on certainties. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It's a great quote from a scientist even. The reality of who Jesus is, the reality of who he is recreating me and you to be, should have the result of causing you and I to just cry out in praise continually, shouldn't it? With praises that are new every morning. Would you rise with me? And we're going to, we're going to praise our God in whom we believe. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you after the song to sit right back down, leave if you have to, but we have a a very brief update that we feel as an elder board is really important. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we bow before you because we know that it is to you alone that all focus, attention, and praise, adoration, and worship must be directed. You are our great God, the Creator God, our Savior, our eternal hope. And it's to you that we lift our voices 
in songs of praise and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.